You're right, Governor. We want to talk to you about rubbish. We're going to talk about trash today. <laughs> Are you a trash person? <laughs> I am a trash man. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Hubbub Podcast. Hello. I am Sarah. And I am Ross. And this week, we're going to be taking you on a journey through the past, present and future of trash. (laughs) Rubbish. It's a rubbish episode. It's going to be terrible. But still give us five stars, please. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you to Dr. Pimplipop, who did actually leave us a review. Admiral Pimplipop, (laughs) who left us a review after we begged for one. (laughs) Thank you very much. Yes. Um, So we do the past, present and future of sustainability issues and today we're going to look at the history of rubbish how does that work sarah you might ask yourself how does one tell the history of rubbish but so many people have written books about it uh, and there's loads of interesting stuff going on so it's going to be fascinating it's going to be a whirlwind of trash and plague and disease get ready (laughs) i'm so keen for this i'm gonna let's get grubby (laughs) let's get grubby could that be the tagline to our podcast hashtag let's get grubby i'm gonna hop down a garbage chute all the way back to the past how far back all the way back i'm going all the way back to ancient greece don't forget to hold your nose (gasps) the collection and removal of our rubbish isn't necessarily a modern invention Archaeologists have found waste dumps in Native American cultures that date to 6,500 BC. And in ancient Greece, there were regulations which stated that your rubbish had to be taken at least a mile outside of the city centre. So while some places were working out ways to deal with the problem, it didn't really cause us too much trouble, mostly because there weren't that many of us. The population of ancient Athens, or Attica, was only about 250,000 people, compared to the 3.7 million people who live there today. And what we were throwing away was different. Back in the olden days, we were mostly throwing away kitchen scraps and broken pottery. Jumping forward to London in the mid-1600s, things started to get a little bit trickier. It was really common for people to throw kitchen scraps, dishwater and grease out of the window, which in combination with open sewers helped rats come into the city, which helped spread the bubonic plague that wiped out a quarter of the population in just 18 months. But despite the plague and the typhoid and the cholera, not much was done about the state of rubbish in London until the mid-1700s, when a writer named Corbin Morris called for the state to organise cleaning of the city to protect its citizens' health. While no such scheme came about until a few years later, what we did get were dust yards, people who would come to collect the ash left over from coal and wood fires that a lot of London's rubbish at the time consisted of. This dust was the main raw material in brick making at the time, so collecting it was a very lucrative business. This worked really well until the price of dust collapsed, but it wasn't until 1875 that the Public Health Act came into effect, which made it compulsory for councils to collect waste and for the first time for households to put their waste into dustbins. This rubbish was still mostly ash waste, hence the dustbin, It wasn't until the start of the 20th century that people began to think of things as disposable in the way that we do now. One writer on the subject put it really well. He puts forward the idea that you have different values or non-values depending on where you are in society, on your status, on your relationship to the things that you have and the availability of something to replace the thing that you're throwing away. So basically, what do you have? Do you like it? And can you afford to replace it if you throw it away? 
In the first 30 years of the 20th century, particularly in America, production boomed. They produced lots of uniform, mass-produced goods which cost money, very different from the handmade, homemade and makeshift products which came before it. This is important because a lot of these products were advertised as clean, convenient alternatives to homemade products, like sanitary pads for instance, which were so cheap that you could throw them away. The staunch attitude of reuse and make do and mend which came back during the war on rationing was replaced with the idea that buying things which were disposable was not only the right and cleanest way to do it, but that it could make a huge positive contribution on your quality of life. Loads of these products were marketed at women. They were things which would unchain them from an unending stream of housework and give them the kind of life that was only previously possible if you had servants. The August 1st issue of Life magazine offers a two-page article on throwaway living sold on the idea that single-use items are a necessity of the modern lifestyle. Things which before seemed indispensable were now seen by this society which was getting richer as rubbish. Up till that point, there hadn't really been any need for a formal recycling process. Recycling kicks off in a big way in the mid-1960s when the 100% aluminium can was introduced. It had a massive resale value and you could recycle it as many times as you liked. In 1970, the first Earth Day highlighted the problem of waste and recycling, but believe it or not, it wasn't until 2003 that the Household Waste and Recycling Act was passed, which required someone to come and pick up recycling from the curbside outside your house. It's worth pointing out, in this history, I've only really spoken about the UK and America. Uh, and at the moment, what we're still doing in the UK is shipping a lot of our waste abroad. China has now banned the imports of a lot of foreign waste, but we still ship it to a lot of different countries. And it just shows how far removed we are from what happens to our rubbish and how convoluted the chain of responsibility is. Today, we throw away 26 million tonnes of rubbish in the UK every single year. And the throwaway society that was glamorised in the last century still persists and is getting worse. There is a clear connection between climate change and the amount of stuff that we're producing and throwing away. So I'm going to make the long, arduous journey back up the rubbish chute to Ross, who is waiting with Kana Ahababa, who is going to tell us how the rubbish that we make affects the environment and what we can do about it. I'm Kana. I work at Hubbub. I work on one of our food waste campaigns. And why are you so interested in rubbish? Because we've had a lot of chats about this, which is why I brought you on. I'm interested in it because when I was a kid, my mum would often take me to see what she was working on. She worked in waste management, so her work involved a lot of landfills and anaerobic digestion units and she would take me to these places i was probably eight that's at the so, time that's so cool like that's the most unconventional day trip <laughs> yeah like my parents never took me to a landfill <laughs> it was very routine it was almost like every week and she was just passionate about showing me how things were created and destroyed and she wanted me to see that waste have value and so I thought it was very normal for an eight-year-old to have seen a landfill and to know that animal and human poo can be turned into electricity. Good knowledge to have at any age. <laughs> <laughs> I've still I've still not seen a landfill. What do they What do they actually look like? I just couldn't comprehend that humans produce this much waste and that these were all from the from my neighbours. Like these are the people I know. 
it was quite nice to see where my things end up because I think I used to think when I put things in the bin, that's where it stopped. A magic fairy will come and whisk away the bin and then yeah. it's done. Yeah, <laughs> it, it was just emptied and then you start again and you never, ever see it accumulate. I don't think we're ever confronted with the actual stuff that we throw away. So People... it's just like mounds upon mounds of rubbish. Yeah. Terrifying. It's terrifying, isn't it? We were having quite an interesting conversation earlier about... Um, what would happen if all the rubbish you'd ever, uh, like, thrown away was put in your back garden? And you were forced to look at it. Like, that's essentially what we're doing, really, isn't it, with landfills, just yeah. somewhere else. And a lot of these landfills as well are in out-of-town locations, often in places where there's a lot of, like, poorer residents living because it, not everyone wants to live by landfill. So there's, like, a double whammy of us putting it out of sight and out of mind, but someone is having to live next to that. What are the actual problems with rubbish today? Uh, the problems are people are buying too much, and I think people often buy because they think it will make them happy. People buy because... The way the products have been designed, um, they've not been designed to last. They're designed with a short time frame and or they're designed to go out of fashion quickly. So this came out in the news with, with iPhones specifically had it, whereas people realised that they had been planning yeah. uh, they would only last for four years or whatever before they would break. Four years? Yeah. And then that's, they... <laughs> quite, that's quite good innings yeah. for the iPhones I've had. <laughs> They've changed it now, but I think that was the first time that I ever even realised that designers would... I just assumed people would design stuff to last for as long as it possibly could. Yeah, and I think that that's how things used to be made because we were very careful about how we use our resources. But I think in the 1950s, industrial designers started to understand that you can decide how durable your products are or how often you want people to buy more things or new things and iPhones are great examples because they come out every year every mm. year there's something new and people often get embarrassed or this is this is shame about oh I'm I'm slightly out of fashion and I think because it's so visible and because people put a lot of meaning into the things that we have it can be a very powerful tool to make people want to buy new things and they they don't um they don't degrade at all do they they're really bad for the no. environment it's it essentially comes down to the the producers working out that the more they make the more we'll buy and the more money they will make where does this stuff go when we throw it away with electronic waste i think it's notoriously difficult mm. to recycle or to process because they've got so many different components and some of the metals, you know, you, you can't really turn them. You, can, you can't just recycle all of them. I read a really interesting article about AirPods the other day and they are essentially the worst thing that you can throw away. No. They are terrible. Why is that? Because of what they've got in them? Yeah, the metals that, that's inside it are re just really difficult to... And they're glued in a way and it's just really, really bad for the environment. And it seems crazy to me that we are continuing to make stuff that we know is really hard to recycle, bad for the environment, and then we just throw it away and don't care. And I, I've done it with so many things where I've loved it when I bought it and I've thought it's the coolest, best thing since sliced bread. And then two years later, I'm like, oh, I don't really care about that thing anymore. So it feels like rubbish to me, which is terrifying. Why do you both think that we have lost value in stuff in that way? Because I imagine... 
maybe even my parents, my grandparents probably put more value in stuff and they wouldn't go through things at the same rate that I do. So the other day I thought of buying a new coat and I had this, I have this really nice burnt orange coat and... Very autumnal. <laughs> it is my, it is my only one autumnal piece that I... Love it. That I wear. And it was missing all of its buttons. Actually, it still is missing all of its buttons, apart from one, <laughs> apart from one. And it's been just about okay, but I really, really wanted to buy a new one because I thought I can't wear this one anymore. And I looked around and actually thought, well, I don't want any of these ones. I want my one just with complete buttons. <laughs> and it was actually, when you think about it, it's actually so easy to just sew some buttons. And I think that that's what we're missing. I think we forget that you can repair things. Mm. The moment you see something breaks, your instant reaction is, I need to get a new one. Mm -hmm. Because it's so much easier to buy a new product. Like you need one click on Amazon and you get it delivered to your door next day delivery. My grandmother would probably want to fix my stuff because because she thought it was an easy fix. Yeah. And well, I mean, like every time something of mine, you know, breaks, a button falls off or something, I immediately go to either my sister or my mum to get those, to get it fixed. They've that, got the skills. They've got the skills. The thing is, like I grew up in a in a generation where we just didn't get those, we didn't get taught those skills. And I've never sewn a button onto anything. I can bake a cake, but <laughs> I've never sewn a button onto anything. You can bake a cake and you've never bought a cake into the podcast recording <laughs> studio. <laughs> Guilty. I'm livid. <laughs> but um, to go back to your initial question, I think that we have... Just a really short, like me personally, I have a really short attention span. Um, so as soon as I see the next shiny thing on my iPhone, as I'm scrolling through Instagram, there's an advert for something. I'm like, oh, I need it. And like immediately I'm buying it. And, you know, six months down the line, it's probably sitting somewhere and I'm just going to throw it away. Yeah. And I, I think it's also that we've grown up being used to there being loads of stuff around. Like I buy something and if I throw something away... I'm doing it with the knowledge that I can probably get that thing again. I'm not. There's not going to be like suddenly a shortage of kettles that means that I <laughs> <laughs> can't buy one, which probably 50 years ago, 60 years ago, maybe even further back, maybe that was more of a awareness that you had in your brain. I don't want to throw this away because I don't know if I can afford or get another one of these straight away. But here's the thing, right? Think of um, the audience of say a kettle or a toaster they are probably aimed at you know people who own houses you know more middle-aged people and to be honest in my experience they are kind of made to last whereas I feel like fast fashion technology was all aimed at younger generations mm -hmm. at the beginning obviously it has moved into different demographics but the stuff aimed at younger generations because they know we have a shorter attention span is not made to last and we also don't have the skills to fix them yeah. so we end up with loads of rubbish and now we're paying the price for it and we haven't even spoken about the packaging that all of that stuff comes in which is mm. the main mm. bulk of all of this rubbish is the thing and the thing that we're buying loads of, but then also the thing that that thing comes in is what's making so much drama. So what do we do? How do we make it better? I think that the first step is being aware of when you want to buy things. And I think that it's good to buy less 
or buy better quality stuff. But I also think that we can't swap one resources for another. Like we can't shop our way out of this. Mm. And so I think a better question is, how do you want to live? What's enough for you and what's making you content? It's quite difficult, though. I find that there's sort of a financial constraint there. And it's easy to say like, oh, yeah, buy less. But actually, if I've bought, let's say, a pair of shoes from a fast fashion company and I'm in that cycle of buying fast fashion shoes that wear out every three months, for me to then invest in a sustainable uh, brand pair of shoes that I know are going to last longer is a bit of an investment. Mm. And I feel like some people don't necessarily have that money to make that step into the sustainable cycle. It's it's really tough. The actual or perceived exclusivity of being able to be sustainable. Yeah. A lot of people talking about sustainability are middle class, have cash. It's really easy to say, invest in this coat that's going to last you for 10 years, like you say. But we were in a meeting talking about fashion um, and how we get people to change the way that they buy. And some people that we were there with um, who were a little bit older were saying, well, I've had this jumper for 20 years so I really know that this is good quality and I know what good quality feels like because I've seen this through and now I can look for a jumper of the same quality but for people like us who are 25 if I was wearing something for 20 years it would have been when I was a baby yeah exactly (laughs) so I have no idea what other than vintage stuff because I know that's lasted a long time if I buy something new I can't really work out if it is gonna last for a really long time or if it's gonna go weird in the wash i just don't have the longevity of understanding so the way to solve this particularly for clothes or anything like that is just go root around in your parents wardrobe yeah i do that all the time (laughs) i do that all the time my mum gives me a lot of her clothes and i still wear them to like the office so maybe there's a whole other conversation about upskilling ourselves as well definitely teaching ourselves how to wash clothes properly and how to fix stuff and how to adult how to adult (laughs) let's go let's uh, wait for that wait for that episode where me and you go on an adulting course (laughs) sarah and ross become grown-ups for the day (laughs) here's how to do your taxes (laughs) well kanna thank you so much for coming and speaking to us about trash you're very welcome it's Uh, been lovely we're going to hop forward into the future now. We're going to jump down a garbage chute. We're going to jump down a garbage chute. Me and Ross are going to Peterborough to interview Adam Reed, who is... Dr. Adam Reed. Sorry, Dr. Adam Reed, who is the guru... He's a genius. ...of waste and recycling to find out how we're going to fix all of this. To the garbage! Hi, I'm Dr. Adam Reed. I'm the External Affairs Director at Suez where I'm responsible for government liaison and uh, working on new policy initiatives and new developments and opportunities. Uh, I've been in the sector about 25 years. And in your opinion, what would a really sustainable system of waste management and recycling look like? What's the dream? Oh, the dream. (laughs) When I retire, you mean. So when there's no need for a waste manager. Um, So I think there's a a few things for that utopian future of of resource management. One will be we buy a lot less Mm -hmm. stuff. We buy stuff that is recycled, has high recycled content, and is easy to recycle. And that way you can put PET bottles or aluminium cans can go round and round the system a number of times. And that means your overall resource footprint drops. Number two, that'll make recycling easier with consistent collections and much less likely that we get that contamination problem. People putting it in the wrong bin or people hoping that we'll recycle it if they put it out 
anyway. So I think we get a bit more consistency, which means my, my, my efficiency at my plants improves, which means more and more of the material goes round and round and round. But add to that, I think, you know, the big step change we really need is this culture of not consumption, but service use. So this idea that we start to refill bottles mm-hmm. and, you know, the refillable water bottle has been a huge campaign this, this previous year. But not only that, when you go to, um, you know, do we need to own cars? Do we need to own TVs? Do we need to own many of the things that we don't use frequently at home, you know, and start to move into a, a culture where we hire them when we need them? And that way you never really own them and therefore somebody else is going to keep maintaining them that means actually their life is extended and I think the idea of not buying light bulbs but buying light as a service (laughs) is quite an interesting concept because I don't have to worry about where does my light bulb go which bin where do I take it back to I think you know we want to stop some of that and start to buy into the service culture a little bit more so I think changing consumer behavior but also making recycling easier will reduce the overall footprint of our system. I mean, we end up with far less in landfill and, and, and much less in energy from waste. And it makes sense with a lot of stuff that you're not using at home, like a drill. I've used my drill once and we have it. <laughs> we've had it sat in our cupboard. We've had it there for a year, but I only used it when we first moved in. And actually someone could probably make much better use of that than I could. And there are some really good businesses already running but equally, moving that into things that are much more common at home carpet, for example. Mm-hmm. You know, do you want to buy a carpet or do we, do we want to rent a floral, you know, a floor covering that actually at the end of, this, of its use, maybe, you know, five years because you're redecorating, it could be taken back. So it's, it's put down differently and, and they come and, you know, look after it every year with a, you know, with a special industrial clean in a way that that could then be repurposed as opposed to when you strip it out, when you want to change your bedroom, and suddenly that carpet becomes a problem, yeah. and you're working out where do I take it and who wants it. So I think it's just it's conceptually changing the way we see stuff. And going back to your point about contamination and recycling, how much does that actually affect you? Because it's something we've spoken about before, and I think a lot of people are still like, ah, I'm sure it will be fine if I just okay. stick it in the recycling. So contamination, even... A small amount can ruin an entire load. And for example, one of my facilities recently, we've got a a lorry come in with maybe, I don't know, 10 tonnes of mixed recycling, dry mixed recycling, and one bag of um, heavily soiled nappies. Oh, God. Now, the heavily soiled nappies not only ruined the 10 tonnes of recycling because they've been in the back of a lorry that's been moving for several hours and it's, it's had compaction, so you can't be sure what hasn't and, you know, been affected. But equally, I've had to shut the plant for several hours to have a proper clean So there's other material that potentially is not getting through the system just because one family or two families or whatever it might have been in one street has ended up contaminating the load from maybe, you know, six or seven thousand households. So what should people be doing when we recycle? How do we know that I'm putting something in the right place? Well, first and foremost, every local authority would have a leaflet about what it wants and what it doesn't want. Now, some people will say it's not always clear and it's a little confusing. Second, go to their website, which may have been updated more frequently than the, the leaflet you had through your door at last Christmas. So second check would, would make sense. Also, look on the packaging, because a lot more of the on-pack labelling around um, the, the things that we're buying in the supermarkets are becoming clearer about whether it's, yes, recyclable or not. And so in the short term, we know that OPRL, who, who run that, mm-hmm. that packaging labelling, will be coming out in early in 2020. There's going to be some updates to that labelling, which should make it far more binary, yes or no, so there's less confusion. And as we move through 2020 and 2021, we'll see a lot more consistency coming from government about what is target material and what isn't. And I think that'll just make life so much easier for all local authorities to have consistent messaging. 
Now, you've been working in this industry for over 20 years. What is the one thing that you want people to know about what actually happens with their waste and their recycling? Ooh, I would say that I'm no alchemist. And so if you give me rubbish, there's a limit to what I can do with it. Now, that means if you're willing to do a bit of segregation, and I think over the last 20 years, I've seen the, the rise of source segregated or, or captured at the curbside material. The quality of that is what protects you from the global commodity changes. That's what enables you to use my facilities to really close loops in terms of materials. So I think the one thing that I would take away from my 25 years is quality counts, and that's quality at every stage. So if you're buying the wrong thing and you're doing the wrong thing, you're making it hard for the system ever to do anything other than minimise its impact. That was great, wasn't it? Yeah, he is so interesting. He is literally the guru of rubbish. I've interviewed him before and he's amazing. I must say about this episode as well, I never thought that I would be genuinely interested in trash. You want to visit a landfill now, don't you? I really want to know what a <laughs> landfill looks like in the flesh or smells like in the flesh. It smells bad. It we smells need, real I, I, bad. It should be It should be on the curriculum, really. Every child gets taken to a landfill. Find out where your trash goes. I think that is my main takeaway from the episode, is that when we throw stuff away, it doesn't disappear. And when I put stuff in the bin, I need to think about the fact that that will still go somewhere and continue to stay literally in the ground for probably longer than I'm alive. Yeah. It is it is absolutely terrifying. Like, the fact that I can just buy a sandwich, eat the sandwich, forget I've ever eaten the sandwich because <laughs> it was so mediocre, and that bit of plastic around the sandwich will live on forever. It's terrifying. I did a challenge uh, earlier in the year where I collected all the plastic that I collected for a week. So everything that I used that was plastic, put it into a bag. That's so good. It's amazing. And a couple of other people at Hubbub did it. But there was so much stuff that I had just forgotten about. Weird little things that I just didn't even think about. And if you think about how many of those there are in a day. Did you have to carry it around with you, like some sort of... No. (laughs) I did have (laughs) a... Punishment. I had an outside going out bag with a a rubbish bag in it so I could collect my plastic I used on the go. Wow. It was dedicated. And how much did you have in the end? Uh, I had uh, not that much that week, and that's because I'd been out a few times, so I'd eaten out. But it was still about 45 bits of plastic that I used in one week. That's a lot. Yeah. I might have a go at that. Do. Is there Everyone a, have a go at it. Is there an official campaign for that? Yeah, it? it's called Everyday Plastic. I will put the link in the description. They are trying to get 10,000 people to collect all of their plastic for a week so they can get some hard data on what we actually use and what we throw away. It's very cool. And should we leave people with uh, parting knowledge? What would be your main tip to leave people with? I think it is, just like Kanna said, it's not thinking about stuff at the end of its life when you're throwing it away. It's about having a little bit of forethought and starting to think about rubbish when we're buying something. So why am I buying it? Do I need it? What am I going to do with it when I'm done with it? Is this just a bit of trash that I don't really need? Yeah, I mean, that that is a great piece of advice. What's yours? Uh, my piece of advice is, um, and the one that I really like to do, just go when I'm around the supermarket. You know, they've got those like individual plastic bags for um, for fruit and veg. Don't use them. That's it. No, even if you're getting like Brussels sprouts, just pile as many as you can into 
the trolley. No plastic. Woohoo! And uh, yeah, I just have to juggle Brussels sprouts on the way home. It's a beautiful tip. Thank you so much. <laughs> and that is literally the end of series two. Oh no. I know. I had so much fun. I had loads of fun. What did we do? We, we, went, we went to a farm, we saw bees. We learned about milk. It was, a, it was a really good series. It's been a journey. It's been a journey. And if you want to hear from us again, please slide into our DMs. Uh, feel free to recommend uh, a subject for an episode. Yeah, we would love that. Any suggestions that you have for where we should go, what we should be talking about, let us know. And the final thing that I want to leave with you is please recommend us to a friend. Just one friend. And then they'll listen to it. They'll hear this bit. And then they'll recommend it to a friend. Eventually... All 8 billion people on the earth will have heard <laughs> what on earth and we will solve sustainability through education. That's how we're going to save the planet. Easy peasy. Happy Boxing Day if you're listening on the actual day of release. Thank you so much for listening. And we will hopefully see you in 2020. Au revoir.